Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season 10, episode 3, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the 1972 gothic thriller, Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. It was written by David D. Osborne, Robert Bleese, James Sangster, and Gavin Lambert. Passed from writer to writer in a desperate attempt to save it. <laughs> oh dear. Desperate, yes. <laughs> Abby did not like this movie as much as me, just so you all know. And it's a and it's fair. <laughs> it's okay. I still did get a lot of enjoyment out of it, did, despite <laughs> despite the camp. But it was okay. That's all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was directed by Curtis Harrington, and it stars the fabulous Shelley Winters, Mark Lester, Chloe Franks, Ralph Richardson, and Lionel Jeffries. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings can be found in the show notes of this episode. Okay, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? Sure. Children at the local orphanage love spending Christmas at beautiful Forest Grange with widow Auntie Rue. Every year, she throws a party with food, toys, and cozy fireside story times as a reprieve from their dismal lives in the orphanage. But there's something strange about the old house and the way Auntie Rue longingly looks at the children. Rumor has it, that Rue's daughter went missing from Forest Grange years earlier. Did Auntie Rue have something to do with it? Will orphaned brother and sister Christopher and Katie become victims of Auntie Rue's? And is Christopher's hunch about Auntie Rue being a witch true? Do, do, do! <laughs> All of these questions are answered. <laughs> They sure are. But some aren't. (laughs) Like, why does Auntie Rue say that her daughter is missing when she just died? Why? Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like there's... Because... Okay. I feel like there's a plot hole there because I'm going into this real quick because it bugs me so much. Is she trying to, like, replace the daughter and, like, try to pass her off as the daughter come home? That's what I was wondering, too. Because it's been a few years. So, like, she wants Katie to be the new Kathy. 
But Katie's the same age as when Kathy died. So how, what is her motive? There's no motive. And then she, and then all of her staff know that she does these seances to contact Kathy's spirit. (laughs) So like she can't hide it from them. So what's going, so what is, she's just, I think she's just off her rocker. What if her, oh no, because it's explained how Katie, or Catherine, it's explained how Catherine dies in the movie. Right. She has a flashback of her of her falling, falling off, off the banister. Right. But what happens to her husband? Is that ever explained? No, he does a magic trick and disappears. <laughs> <laughs> That's what a they say. Trick? Like, because he's a magician. That's his job. Did he go he's... down to the gas station for like a pack of luckies and then just not come back? No, was he that was the literally trick? he was literally performing. He's literally performing on stage a, a disappearing, reappearing trick, and he never reappeared. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a very good illusionist. <laughs> yes, to quote Clue, of course. <laughs> oh uh, that's God. exactly what happened. That is what happened. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Such mystery and intrigue with this film. Yeah, so we never find out what happens to him. So that is just the weirdest freaking thing ever. Ugh. Yeah. So. All right, well. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. <laughs> you really did make the film so much more interesting than it actually is. <laughs> and I'm saying that Aww. with a whole lot of love because I genuinely adore this film. Warts and all. I can't help it. I love gothic tales and I love camp. So <laughs> let's get into the production of this film. So I'm going to start this section off by talking about the director of this film, Curtis Harrington. This is a snippet from chapter 16 of the book, Yuletide Terror, Christmas Horror on Film and Television. The chapter is called Our Best Tree Ever When Experimentalists Tackle Yuletide Terror by Calum Vance Dahl. I'm pretty sure is how I looked it up earlier. Calum Vance Dahl. They say, quote, it's logical. The least Christmassy Christmas movies are those made by directors least likely to make a Christmas movie at all. Curtis Harrington fits into this category, and so do Theodore Gershony and Monty Hellman. Each of these filmmakers crossed the veil into avant-garde early in their careers, but it was Harrington who nearly made it his métier. He began in the 1940s with evocative black and white shorts and used the trappings of horror ghostly figures and bewig skeletons to explore his own sexuality. And once that was figured out, as much as things ever are, he moved on to evocative black and white pictures exploring other strange other stranger waters. In 1971, he went to England and made his single stab at the Christmas horror subgenre with Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. Unquote. So, yeah, Curtis Harrington was an openly gay man while he was working in the 70s, so that's pretty cool. And it's also really interesting, especially since we're talking about hagsploitation in this episode, which I'll cover later, Uh, but he is considered one of the forerunners of new queer cinema. 
And I'm going to talk a bit about that real quick. New Queer Cinema, also known as Queer New Wave, describes independent films from the early 90s that focus on LGBT protagonists living on the fringe of society as well as the rejection of heteronormativity. And I'm getting this info from movie.com. So yeah, Harrington was one of the forerunners. And um, yeah, that's a little queer history for y'all this holiday season. So, uh, but Calum Vanstall thinks that this film lacked Christmas spirit. Uh, And they also said, quote, Harrington relies on the supposed natural incongruence of horror and Christmas to lend the picture its strangeness, and evidently felt disinclined to salt it with any further avant-garde touches, unquote. But uh, Vanstall justifies this, saying, quote, To be fair, this is a retrospective appraisal in 1972 before The Nightmare Before Christmas in 1993 and a thousand Santa Claus slashers, Christmas and creepiness were not considered such natural chums. Having a Christmas tree in the room adjacent to the scary goings-on was good enough and it was not yet necessary to stab people in the eye with ornaments, electrocute them with strings of colored lights or bake their skin into gingerbread cookies, unquote. Oh. Yeah, so they justify why this movie might not be very Christmassy. Because it just wasn't a it just wasn't a thing yet. Yeah. According to Stacia of She Blogged by Night, quote Based on the story of Hansel and Gretel, a fairy tale that Christopher refers to repeatedly throughout the film. <laughs> Whoever slew Auntie Rue from 1972 was originally called the Gingerbread House, which might have been a better title because it doesn't spoil the ending like this one does. (laughs) (laughs) Gingerbread House was later changed to the Susian Who Slew Auntie Rue, and director Curtis Harrington objected to that title, wanting one that sounded more like the Grand Dame Gignol classic whatever happened to baby jane and even though posters and lobby cards with the first title had already been distributed the studio acquiesced to harrington's demands and a few new posters were made which read whoever slew auntie rue they look exactly the way you'd expect a rush job would unquote (laughs) okay so uh they mentioned Grand Dame Gignol films, which I know I'm pronouncing that wrong too. I tried to look it up multiple times. I suck at pronouncing things, so I'm very sorry, everyone. Um, but these films, uh, what do they mean? What does that word mean? Well, wait around and find out. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that later. <laughs> Okay, so according to Wikipedia, a production between uh, the United States and the United Kingdom, the film was shot at Shepperton Studios in London. Uh, So a ton of other famous films were also made at this studio, including A Clockwork Orange, Alien, Gandhi, and Star Wars. Oh, okay. (laughs) So lots of movies. Uh, Yeah. Lots of good movies. (laughs) (laughs) So there are some stories from the set that actor Shelley Winters, who I adore and love, that she played these very bizarre, weepy, tragic old ladies in her later films. And, I, you know, I guess we can lump Pete's Dragon into that, too. <laughs> so oh, she's, my God. She's yeah. The, she's the evil lady who tries to adopt Pete. Yep. In that film. She's like yells and screams in that, too. It's great. Oh, my God. Um, she's got a thing for orphans, I guess. I guess. <laughs> Yikes. 
Um, but I guess she was quite a handful and was a drama queen. But there's a lot of speculation that she was pushed to the limits by the other actors quite often. So it's maybe not entirely her fault. And even so, it seems to have been embellished either way. Um, also, she's a Leo. So maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love her. Uh, so according to Ann Bilson, quote, always as much character actor as leading lady, Winters embraced Hagdom more readily than her more glamorous counterparts, unquote. And you know what? I really appreciate that of her. Yes, and I love that word, hagdom. Hagdom. <laughs> yep, that's what I'm striving for, 2022. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> oh, you go from one second you're maiden, the next year you're your mother, and then just right away you're crone, right? <laughs> Is that how you're doing the Abby? <laughs> well, it's like how my husband says all the time, Time passes differently in a pandemic. One pandemic year is like 10 years. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So according to Wikipedia, there were there are like a few release dates for this film. Uh, February 11th, 1972, the film was released in the United Kingdom. About a month later, on March 15th, it was released in New York City. And then a few days after that, on March 17th, it was we're just released wherever anyone would have it <laughs> in the United States. Here, have this. <laughs> yeah, basically. According to Nathaniel Thompson for Turner Classic Movies, quote, despite its generally positive reception and enduring cult popularity, Who Slew Auntie Rue would mark the end of an era for Curtis Harrington as his final theatrical feature to receive significant distribution in the United States and worldwide in the form its creator intended, unquote. So that's a little sad, but yeah. yeah. Uh, Greg Butler from All Movie uh, wrote, quote, if one is in the right frame of mind, who slew Auntie Rue can be a lot of ghoulish fun. It's not good, mind you. As a matter of fact, Rue is basically trash. (laughs) (laughs) But it's campy and silly and just the ticket if you're in the mood for a film that makes you groan at its (laughs) inanity as often as it makes you shiver, unquote. Oh my gosh, what a quote. Yeah, I had to pick it though because I laughed so hard. He's right though. He's right. <laughs> oh, okay. Merry Christmas. Let's get into the Bechdel test. Merry crisis. Merry crisis. It's Christmas. <laughs> Merry Chrysler. Okay, let's get into the Bechdel test. Does it pass? Yes, it does a few times. Uh, mostly between Auntie Rue and her maid, Clarine, and also Rue and Katie. So, oh, and Kathy, too. It passes a lot. So, nice. which is really nice. Yeah. Uh, was the supporting cast at least, oh God, I'm just jumping right in. This is more of a relaxed fit episode, if you can't already tell. You know what? It's Christmas. It's We're full of eggnogs. Eggnogs. Oh yeah. Eggnogs and cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Baked human skin gingerbread cookies. <laughs> 
my god i'm just starting to drink coffee too what the heck oh my god same oh everyone you're so nice to be listening thank you so much i know all right nancy's dream team test okay let's just back it up here was the supporting cast at least 50 percent women yes did a woman write direct produce or edit the film no was the final girl or main character a person of color no in fact this entire film was filled with white people were there any openly lgbt plus characters in the film no but there is definitely some queer uh uh, iconography in this film Mm. especially shelly winters yeah uh and we're gonna talk about that in just a minute so let's first talk about basically like the very brief history and explanation of exploitation or as it's also known as Grand Dame Guignol, or as it's also known as Psycho Biddy Films. Wow. Yeah, there's a few different words. It depends on, I guess, how you feel about this genre. <laughs> All right, I can get down um, with that. According to Nathaniel Thompson, quote, the so-called horror hag or Grand Dame Guignol craze inaugurated by the smash success of Robert Aldrich, uh, Aldrich's uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962 was starting to wind down by the early 1970s. But the formula of casting tried and true Hollywood actresses past their ingenue years in gothic melodramas still had some kick left in it by the time director Curtis Harrington got his hands on it, unquote. And according to Rebecca Paul, for their essay entitled A Primer for the Unexpectedly Awesome Hagsploitation Horror Subgenre, quote, the psycho biddy is the figure at the center of the hagsploitation, also known as hag horror or grand dame guignol genre. According to Rebecca Paul, uh, basically this subgenre was basically started because there was already a prerequisite for like Hollywood's disdain for like they already there was already like this existence of like a disdain for older women in Hollywood basically like I think like I remember reading something where like Lee Wanell who did you know Saw and Insidious and whatnot um he said how um something around the lines of like men like will work up until like their 60s and 70s and still like play these roles where they get the girl you know who is like 20 30 years younger than them and uh it doesn't really happen for women like their roles sort of diminish the older they get and that's how it was back in the day and it's kind of how it is now it's getting better Mm -hmm. but it's not really it's still not really prominent so exploitations were sort of like what the golden age of Hollywood like women like that's what they would like do as they got older and uh, Paul says quote baby Jane invites us into a world where Joan Crawford and Betty Davis are gasp old and ugly (laughs) playing Uh into the public's cruel curiosity about those once at the height of fame and success who have fallen on hard times unquote And according to Ann Bilson, quote, in the 1980s, older women almost vanished from horror, just occasionally popping up to remind us how ghastly they are 
as in The Shining 1980, in which Jack Torrance is thrilled by a sexy nude female ghost, but horrified when she turns into a gurning hag, unquote. You know, that is a really, really good point. And I just thought of this. I wish I had thought about it earlier, but in horror, there is such a place for like elder actors because aging is difficult and scary but also um there are like veterans who have been in this genre for forever um like a couple that come to mind are um oh my gosh her first name is barbara she was in reanimator and um, oh um like get out and stuff like that She's like a really beautiful blonde. No, you're next. Or she's yes, in... not get out. You're next. You're next. Yes, that is correct. And like the lady from um the Insidious movies and stuff like that, which I'm sure is why Lee Wanell said what he said about um, you know, like older actors and stuff in Hollywood and how they kind of get displaced or ignored, but Barbara Crampton. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. And she's the best. Like, ugh. She's just so good. Yes. And, um, well, um, Jamie Lee Curtis is yeah, oh back as Laurie Strode in all the Halloween movies. So Yes. And it's like so important that that exists. And it is kind of um, like a niche thing. Like not everybody likes horror, but that representation is still so important. And, you know, especially with films like The Taking of Deborah Logan, like... I saw a lot of articles talking about exploitation, like modern exploitation, and mm-hmm. a lot of them mentioned um, the taking of Deborah Logan. Yes, yeah, because I mean, it's it's a very real fear for a lot of people, and I think a lot of it has to do with our culture being afraid of aging, and women being told for so long that like, oh, you should do A, B, and C to prevent wrinkles and like you don't want to be caught looking your age like it's so ugh it's just so dumb it, it's it's <laughs> it's awful it's awful because aging is a blessing it is so many people i mean what Kathy in this film that we're talking about this crazy really ridiculous film that we're talking about she never gets to age she's yeah. dead you know and so it's just like um there's there is the sadness of being forever young mm-hmm. that I don't think a lot of people talk about because yeah. it is it's almost like a dream like people want to be forever young and all this stuff you know yeah but it's just like if I mean if you are unless I guess you're a vampire which you know there's some baggage that comes with that as well <laughs> aging truly is a blessing not just yeah. because you're alive but you're experiencing things and you have time. Yes. Time is is a blessing. Not everyone has time. So, yeah. you know, it's a it it is it's scary because of what you said. Like we are told that aging is not good. Yeah. That we'll never be loved or that love will fall away from us and that's sort of the theme of this film and about hag exploitation in general, which is yes. really interesting. But um there is an obvious queer connection to exploitation films, as I mentioned earlier, with Curtis Harrington being an openly gay man who made this very campy film 
Um, according to Sarah Clements, when talking about the 1981 film Mommy Dearest, which is based on actress Joan Crawford, quote, what stuck in gay men's minds wasn't the abuse. It was the image of Faye Dunaway as Crawford dressed in black, cold cream on her face with a slash of red lipstick as she held a wire coat hanger in the air. This imagery solidified the film's status as one of the campiest movies of all time and a pinnacle of drag queen imagery. Camp is a popular term in gay male culture and synonymous with flamboyant exaggeration. Uh, One reason that it's a beloved style of characterization is that it allows audiences to laugh at others suffering. This might be projected in the characters these icons play on the stage or screen or the personas they choose to project. Many Hollywood stars fell into camp because long after their careers had begun to decline, the cameras kept rolling, unquote. So Clements talking about Joan Crawford in the film Mildred Pierce also says, quote, this is one of Crawford's first roles where she exudes feminine masculinity as she usurps masculine power and achieves her own independent success in the world with her over accentuating shoulder pads and masculine looking suits. This suggests Mildred's sexual flu- fluidity and Crawford having that one fan called and Crawford having what one fan called a quote masculine anima projection where other female stars of her day held the typical feminine anima projection unquote yeah so there's definitely this connection that I like that actually blew my mind and I'll, I'll talk more about it in just a second but I want to mention this first um, according to Anthony Uzerowski quote Coinciding with the growing sense of unrest and desire to be heard, the Psycho Bitty films managed to appeal to the gay community's sense of outrage, which was brewing under the surface. The larger-than-life heroines of Grand Dame Guignol faced society's scrutiny without the protective armor of marriage or motherhood, often indulging in excess and eccentricity symbolizing survival and flamboyant rebellion, thereby inadvertently gaining cult following among the gay community. Over the years, this has also been reflected in an overwhelming number of parodies by drag artists who are who used the iconic heroines of the psychobitty horrors as an inspiration, unquote. So like I said, this really blew my mind when I when I thought of this and I looked it up to make sure it was real. <laughs> because i was like this is why gay men especially are so connected to hagsploitation yes because of the camp Mm. and it just makes perfect sense and i think that i mean joan crawford is definitely like she is definitely like the pinnacle of all this obviously Mm -hmm. but i think because shelly winters really really embraced this new like role basically Mm -hmm. in her life as this character actor as she got older i think that she personally for me is like the best example of this Mm. like at its core Mm -hmm. maybe joan crawford is more of a of an icon in like a physical sense you know and like whatever but i think like 
Shelly Winters really, I feel like, knew what she was doing and like loved it and was all in to it. Yes. So, and that's why I really appreciate her. And that's why I chose this film. Not only because it's Christmas, but it just makes, like for me, I think like this is like a great example of that. Yes, I agree. Okay, so now that we all know a little bit about exploitation films, let's discuss some serious things here. Um, menopause, the barren body, and maternal grief in horror, especially this film. So I have a book here by Erin Harrington. So Erin has this amazing book called Gyna Horror, Women, Monstrosity, and Horror Film. I got it a few years ago for Christmas from my husband. (laughs) (laughs) The best. And it has a great chapter about just this, what we're about to talk about. Living deaths, menstrual monsters, and exploitation, Horror and of the abject barren body. Um, So Aaron says, quote, The roll call of gyna horror is comprehensive, and yet in the reproductive and sexual trajectory that I have offered thus far from first sex onwards, there is something missing. Menopause and the experience of aging, non-reproductive women in horror. I refer to these as abject barren bodies. Barren, colloquially, refers to female, but not male, infertility. It also has negative gendered connotations that I wish to strategically draw from for its association with unproductivity, lifelessness, and sterility inherently, uh, and inherently refers to a sort of material or environment that could be productive, but refuses to be so. Compare this emphasis to the term impotent, which instead implies a loss of male power, unquote. Hmm. So already the wording here for, for women who cannot have children is sexist. Yeah. So Harrington goes on to say, quote, the barren body both excludes itself from the dominant social order and is excluded because of its failure to comply to a reproductive imperative that positions self-sacrificing motherhood as the ideal form of ideologically complicit female subjectivity. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so now let's talk. So now that we're we're very aware how sexist this the whole thing is, <laughs> let's let's talk about the horror of menopause. So Harrington says, book ending a cis sexual woman's normative reproductive life in this way offers up some interesting questions with regards to gyna horror films. For although menstrual monsters are both obviously and allegorically present, menopause itself is conspicuously absent in the horror genre. Menopause, literally the end of monthly cycles, is the period of a woman's life during which the ovaries stop producing egg cells and menstruation ceases. While this process usually begins around the age of 50, it can present itself as early as one's 30s and as late as one's 60s. Given the slow upwards creep of a woman's life expectancy, physicians Tracy A. Takahashi and K. M. Johnson indicate that American women will spend 40% of their lives in post-menopause phase. Physical changes associated with the change in the body's hormonal balance include 
uh, symptoms related to the constriction or opening up of blood vessels, such as hot flashes, as well as changes to the vulva and vagina, including a decrease in lubrication and a thinning of the vaginal walls. These later changes might be accompanied by pain, dryness, discomfort, and changes in urinary function. Menopause can also be associated with psychological symptoms such as anxiety and depression, unquote. Damn. (laughs) So no wonder women really are afraid of aging. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's never fun. It's never fun to be young, and it's not fun to be old either as a woman. It's true. But the way that it's talked about medically, like, I don't know. I feel like it could be talked about a little bit more positively. (laughs) Like, it doesn't have to suck all the time. Like, there are things that you can do that will help you get through it. And I feel like it's all just doom and gloom all the time for women. And it sucks. It just sucks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What's really interesting is that Harrington talks about how um, in Japan, women don't suffer as much from menopause as North American women. Yeah, Uh, It says here that women are significantly more likely to experience negative psychological and physiological symptoms than their Japanese counterparts. Uh, (laughs) So uh, they're not really sure why, though, as I'm reading this. Um, It it really does have to depend. It really does depend on race, ethnicity, and I guess health and diet, really, too. Yeah. So, yeah, but um, but Harrington says, for the purpose of my argument here, I refer to the experiences of menopause and postmenopause that are mostly widely felt, reported, and theorized in the West. So, like, right. this whole idea of things being really doom and gloom is really kind of a North American thing. <laughs> yeah, it's Western medicine. It's what happens when fucking old white men are in charge of women's health right and it is perpetuated for forever i swear to god if men were not in charge of women's medicine we would probably have a cure for endometriosis right now instead of 100 bajillion erectile dysfunction pills but that's for a different day <laughs> I mean, it could be today, really, if you want. It's Christmas. Give every, give everyone the gift. You know what? Of your it is Christmas, and I'll talk about it if I want to. <laughs> so Harrington uh, talks about how uh, hag exploitation and this whole thing of the barren body and menopause and maternal grief works with whoever slew Auntie Rue. Harrington says, quote, uh, this is a film that plays with the story of Hansel and Gretel and that casts Rue as a sort of smothering, overbearing witch figure. This final immensely destructed destructive conflagration emphasizes Rue's pathetic nature and her desire to replace her dead daughter, whose corpse is she still cares for is hidden in the nursery as opposed to her own unhinged and criminal actions again delving into the ambiguous space between the living and the dead the maternal and the barren the sense of pathos is exact 
exasperated by the earlier scene in which middle-aged overweight Rue, like baby Jane, insists upon performing grotesquely numbers from her past as a sexy showgirl for the group of orphan children she has invited for Christmas dinner. These films must also be read intertextually with the knowledge of both the actor's past work and personal lives shaping the over-signification of the film image. Oh my god. That is like the most bizarre scene though in the film is when she starts singing the Tit Willow song to those little kids. Truly, truly. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> but it it's so I love it because it's like, yes, like she is a menopausal barren woman trying to relive her past. Like this past that she had like before before children, really, mm-hmm. even. And, like, when she was younger and thinner and single and, and and it's kind of tragic. It's sad, you know? It is sad. It, it really is. I, uh, I don't know. I was, I was a little uncomfortable watching it. <laughs> Good. I was like, you know what? Good for you, girl. Like, <laughs> get it. Have that body confidence. Like, that was cool. But oh yeah, and that's why I love Shelley Winters. Like she did not give a fuck about that kind of stuff. Like it's... she got she got fat and fat is not a bad word. And she got fat and she was beautiful still. So because you know that's what? just how it is. I know. She was like a voluptuous Renaissance painting. <laughs> I love it. Yep, she really like she was very confident. She didn't care what people thought, um, as far as I know. And she went with it. And I was like, yep, good for her. But I think, like, in the context of the film, it is, like, this thing where it's, like, it's it's sad because she is so lonely and she wants to be loved. And this was a time when she was loved. Like, she's sort of reliving that. So it's sad. Yeah. Okay. So Harrington goes on to say, although the exploitation subgenre was real relatively short-lived, some of the assumptions underpinning its mode of representation remain prominent. The negative stereotypes surrounding the aging female body, including the emphasis upon loss and decrepitude in the cultural construction of the menopausal and postmenopausal body. Monstrous mothers are defined by an unhealthy connection to their children or their own sort of perverse monstrosity, unquote. Oof. Yeah. So finally, Harrington says, most importantly, these stories are colored by loss and longing. This might be for themselves, for a past that cannot return, and for the loss of agency and relationships. They may express a fear of aging, and yet they offer a space of significant resistance and a way of interrogating the fictions that underpine value-driven constructions of feminine worth by revealing the nature of the boundaries that are created and enforced through the act of abjection. So, yes, uh, a lot of words there. <laughs> but I, this book was so insightful to me when looking at what to kind of discuss about this film because I knew I wanted to cover this film but I was like I'm not sure what to talk about and really Aaron Harrington's book really kind of like made a light bulb go off in my head where this is the true horror of 
this film and films like this, this loss and longing and fear of aging and uh, the sense of like not having anything left. And I think like that's why I think this film for me really like hits me in the heart because at its core, exploitation films are actually very sad. And um, I want to talk a bit about maternal grief and how it might connect to what uh, um, Harrington's book said and what we discussed earlier. But um, this is an essay from Horror Homeroom by Brian Finelli. And it is about the 2018 Ari Aster film Hereditary. But Finelli mentions something that reminded me of Auntie Rue. Um, They say, quote, hereditary is filled with the presence of the dead, and it's about dealing with the dead in your family as well as the living. Near the conclusion of the film, Annie tries to burn the sketchbook of someone she loved to sever a supernatural connection and its deadly effects on her family, yet she can't do it. And when she enlists Steve to help her, he refuses and threatens to call the police on her. The sketchbook becomes symbolic of the dead, a possession left behind, something real and physical that neither Annie or Steve can destroy in order to move on, unquote. And this sort of reminds me of Kathy's bear, which Katie calls William. Mm-hmm. Rue is unable to give it up and let Katie just have it. Instead, she clings to it, so much so that she starts to uh, kind of cling to Katie, who loves the bear and keeps saying that she had one just like it. Rue is unable to let go of her daughter. And I mean, not only does she still have the bear, but she has her daughter's body still, for crying out loud. Um, So it's interesting because simultaneously, Katie can't let go of the bear either. It reminds her too much of her past. Specifically, it might remind her of her supposedly dead parents, like the bear in this film, William, is a sim- is, a, is symbolic of loss. Uh, so there's this thing that they can't get rid of to, like, sever this tie that they have to their pasts. Yeah. And so it brings them together, but in a really toxic way. <laughs> uh, yes. Right. So, like, another connection, which is really, like, this might be borderline a dad joke, but <laughs> this whole, like, too much to bear, right? Bear could be a homonym, right? Like, meaning the suffer. So, like, they have this bear, the suffering that they can't let go of. Yes. So I thought that was kind of an interesting homonym as well. Oh, maybe they did it on purpose. No, they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fine. (laughs) But honestly, I'm so glad that you mentioned Hereditary because as I was watching this film... I was kind of seeing a lot of parallels between the two, Um, namely the generational maternal trauma, like (laughs) saving the corpse of their dead child and the way that grief can manifest as mental illness. Like, I think these are really important themes when we talk about maternal horror, because as mothers, these are fears that subside heavily within us. Like, and I'm not saying this is the case for every person who considers you know, themselves a mother. But I know for many people, the loss of their child is their greatest fear. And films like this one, despite them being like very campy, 
they do a great job of embodying that fear and showing what happens when this is taken to an extreme. And being a woman and being a mother is fucking scary sometimes. <laughs> Like we have talked about. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And I think for me, the subject matter is easier to handle because it is so campy. Yeah. Because child death is one of my triggers in yes. films. Like, yep. I can't do it. But this film definitely makes it easier to handle. <laughs> yeah. Because it is so wild. And so that's why I was like, you know, I was like, well, this is one that I can do because it's so outlandish. <laughs> yeah. But it is. It is one of the, it is, I would say it is the number one fear of 99.9% .9 of people who are parents. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So Shelly Winters was 51 years old when she did this movie. So she was definitely going through menopause at the time. And I assume her character Rue is the same age as her. So she would be as well, the character. So this connects with what Erin Harrington mentioned in their book. Rue not only has lost her biological daughter, but after her husband literally disappeared, <laughs> she lost her chance to have another biological child. Now that she is menopausal, there is no going back. Like her body is quote unquote barren. And um, I believe this is one of the things that has taken a toll on her psyche in the film. And according to uh, Kira, Kira La Janice uh, for their book, House of Psychotic Women, another amazing book. It's getting a re-release with some updates. Get it. It's so good. Um, so Janice talks about the ending and if Auntie Ruin says, quote, when the children try to escape, she falls over herself trying to block their way, shouting, I will not be abandoned. Everyone tries to abandon me. While originally characterized as a sad, mournful widow through the children's eyes, she becomes a tyrannical witch with emphatic vocal mannerisms to match. Mm -hmm. Slowly losing her mind in the midst of this perceived betrayal, she embraces her daughter's corpse, whose skull crumbles in her hands as she whimpers, I have nothing, I have nothing, unquote. Ugh. I know, it's sad. It's so <laughs> sad. I hate those kids so much, though. <laughs> they are, like little shits they are especially christopher actually Seriously? no katie is too they're both so they're both uh, they're are they orphans listen they're orphans but they are the most spoiled orphans they think everything belongs to them listen do you think they killed their parents because i do <gasps> listen, okay i was thinking that i was like i bet you they killed their parents i bet you maybe one of the parents took William away because Katie was being bad and then they killed them yeah well um <laughs> let me uh go ahead and put my psychologist glasses on real quick but yeah uh, Christopher is like a little narcissist he yes. is seriously like he's so possessive of his little sister mm-hmm and I don't know, borderline, like, incestuous, maybe? <gasps> yes! Where he's, like, he needs to have control over her and he needs to know where she is all the time. And, like, an innocent person watching this might be like, oh, well, he's probably just really protective of her. 
But it's also that thing of like being the male figure because her father isn't around, so he feels like he has to be in charge of her. Like, mm-hmm. Christopher is gross. He is just perpetuating that, like, toxic male white patriarchy bullshit. And even I was watching this with Kyle, and he was like, you know what? That kid is a freaking little psychopath because... <laughs> He tries he, to kill his sister at that one part. That one well, part. I know, and he's just like making shit up to fit his idea of what's going on. Like at the end of the film, when they show the pig, and she's like, "Katie's like, she wasn't gonna cook us and eat us," and Christopher's like, "She would have eventually." I'm like, Christopher, you don't know shit. <laughs> you no. don't know shit about. Listen, nobody here in this film is likable, which is absolutely fine. They don't have to be. Um, right. In fact, it's boring if they are. But th- those kids, there's something wrong with them. Obviously, there is- there's something wrong with Auntie Rue, but there's something wrong with those kids, too. Something is up with them. It's the there's trauma. Something- it's the trauma. <laughs> it is. It's like, a, it's. I'm about to be a real big Debbie Downer right now, but it's like... Um, the orphans and stuff that you read about in Romania, how they have trouble, like, connecting with people or, mm-hmm. like, being sociable because of the way that they are treated in the orphanage. And yeah. I'm like, listen, that might be, uh, that might be where it went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, because the woman at the orphanage, too, is not a nice person. Oh, my God. Uh, she's if you're terrible. nice to them, they won't respect you. <laughs> Well, but listen, the other kids, though, seemingly are very sweet and kind children. I know. It is just Christopher and Katie who are so entitled to me, it feels like. And I'm just like, again, they're orphans. But you know what? They're fictional. It doesn't matter. Like they're, <laughs> they're so, they're jerks. They are jerks. Huge jerks. They, like, make that little smile at the end, too. Ew, I know. It reminded me of the omen. Oh, my God, yes. Hmm. <laughs> should have ended with music like that. Seriously. My God. God. And they stole her money. Not that she needed it. She died. But, ugh. I don't know. I know. It didn't, I, it didn't seem right. It left a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> it did. Little criminals. All right. Back to... Back to child death. Oh my god. Uh, uh, Judy Sadie or Jude Sadie Doyle has an amazing book entitled Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power. In it, they have a chapter on birth, and throughout it, they bring up Mary Shelley's very tragic experience. Um, So Doyle says. In the spring of 1815, Mary Shelley dreamed of fire. Dream that my little baby came to life again, she wrote in her journal. That it only had been cold and that we rubbed it by the fire and it lived. I awake and find no baby. I think about the little thing all day. Oh. Doesn't that just bring Christmas spirit to you? I know. 
Oh my God. It's so sad. <laughs> Freaking so sad. Uh, Doyle also says in the days and weeks after childbirth, life and death have a way of blurring together. They seem closer than you'd think. Not two opposed points on a continuum, but two sides of the same locked door. You, the formerly pregnant person, are bleeding, you're wounded, you have been in agony, all of which makes death feel very present. Meanwhile, a person who was not alive is now in the world. Proof that the life force itself has been in you and passed through you. A giant winged shadow gliding along the surface of the world. Birth is a moment when you touch the hidden mechanisms of the universe. It's a time when you work wonders. It seems almost rational that if the baby died, you could just bring it back again. Just as before the baby was born, it was as absent and unknowable as someone dead. The guilt and second guessing seem to have mingled with Mary Shelley's miraculous vision. The power of the body exposed to fire. Ugh. Uh, Doyle goes on and says, uh, uh, and also has something here from Shelley's journal, quote, I stay at home, net, and think of my little dead baby, Shelley wrote just after the baby's death. This is foolish, I suppose, yet whenever I am left alone in my own thoughts and do not read to divert them, they always come back to the same point, that I was a mother and I am so no longer. Ugh. Yeah. So now, listen, I am in no way comparing the mastery of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to Auntie Rue, <laughs> <laughs> nor do I really want to compare Shelley's real life loss to the fictional Rue's fictional loss. But while I was reading this book by Doyle, uh, what really struck me was this whole vision of fire. And this metaphor, especially since Auntie Rue and her daughter burn together at the end of the film. Mm. And listen, Frankenstein isn't considered the first gothic novel, but it is considered the preeminent female gothic. And according to Doyle, like, that's what they said. And there are certainly many gothic themes in Who Slew Auntie Rue. Uh, especially this idea of loss and longing, Right. Mm-hmm. And of this child that is gone. And that is something that Rue deals with in the film. Yes, absolutely. And that's actually a really good transition to our next topic. And one, it's one that we talk about a ton on our podcast, but it has a really unique angle in this film. Um, and it's mental health and... I say unique because of what was going on in our country at the time when this film came out. So let's talk about grief, PTSD, motherhood, generational trauma, and Vietnam era anxieties. Mm. (laughs) Um, So these, all of those in that title kind of sound like buzzwords, especially lately. Um, but when I watched this, I, I couldn't help but relate all of these topics to this movie. Maybe it's because I just finished up a semester of abnormal psych. I don't know. <laughs> so it's kind of like on the brain. But what I do know is that this film is really a brilliant representation of how these themes are represented in horror and how they've carried through films like this all the way up today to today with filmmakers like Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, Trey Edward Schultz. 
They're all A24 people, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> Listen, A24 makes good films. Yeah, they do. They're freaking brilliant. Um, But I truly believe more than any other genre that horror does the best work of showcasing what it means to struggle with mental illness and PTSD. Like, without a doubt. In Whoever Slew Auntie Rue, we get to see the effects of PTSD, grief, and generational trauma play out between both generations, much like we do in Hereditary. Except the cool thing about this movie is that it's from the 70s. So it's kind of um, ahead of its time in that way. Or I guess like more of a reflection of what's going on socially. Um, So I found a really excellent scientific journal article by Becky Miller and Johnny Lee, and they talk about how there's actual cognitive evidence that horror in particular can help people make sense of the emotions that seem too monstrous to bear. They say, we present and defend two overlapping claims. The first weaker claim is that horror is exceptionally well-placed to represent grief, given narrative features that are deeply embedded within the genre. More specifically, we argue that the use of antagonistic forces in horror, what we broadly refer to as monsters, is effective at representing the disruption to one's core, taken-for-granted beliefs, or assumptive world that is characteristic of grief. This claim concerns the representative capacities of the horror genre, given its typical tropes and structures. Building on this, the second stronger claim is that horror can offer psychological benefits for the bereaved. This concerns the cognitive emotional effects on specific demographics consuming horror. Together, these claims suggest the relationship between horror and grief extends beyond the mere fact that grief is unpleasant and horror is suited to exploring unpleasant things. Analogous to the relationship between, say, adolescence and horror, like in Carrie, sexual violence and horror, like in Alien, or racism and horror, uh, such as Get Out. Rather, the special relationship between grief and horror lies in the latter's ability to intimately capture and communicate the phenomenology of grief, and in doing so, help the bereaved make sense of their experience. And I have to say, I would agree. Mm-hmm. I think Absolutely. that horror has helped me move through a lot of my own stages of grief, and I think a lot of other people would agree. But um, when this film came out, men were coming home from the Vietnam, well, men and women, were coming home from the Vietnam War, completely broken by PTSD. Um, alternately, mothers were losing their children or their kids were coming home devastated by what they'd been through. And meanwhile, very young children were left to grapple with the fallout between their older siblings and relatives and their parents. So basically, the country was a fucking mess because of the Vietnam War. Um, Christmas was the one day in 1971 that there were no American casualties because of a 24-hour ceasefire for the holiday. Um, Actually, I don't know if it was the one day. There were probably other days in Vietnam where there might not have been other American casualties, but um, for sure on Christmas Day there were none. Mm -hmm. Um, So much like the film, Christmas is seen as the reprieve from all of the pain and suffering 
that everyone in the film seems to go through. Yes. Like, Auntie Rue gets to be surrounded by children, and the servants get to kind of relax after all their hard work, and the kids get an actual meal and toys and a break from their bleak existence in the orphanage. (laughs) But... Being an orphan is so bleak. It truly is. Um, But after... The holiday is over. It's back to misery as usual. So, <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so what does all of this have to do with this film? Um, between the culture of the time, the anxiety of the holidays, and many families not being able to see their loved ones, the bereavement of mothers who lost their children and husbands during the war, coupled with the guilt and desperation that haunts uh, Auntie Ruth throughout the film, this movie is an excellent time capsule. Of the 70s. Which which is interesting because the film itself doesn't take place in the 70s. Right. But you can sense, which is why it's so kind of cool, you can sense that anxiety that's happening in the 70s, even though this, I think, takes place in like the 20s or something. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Like early, what, 19th century, maybe? Something. Yeah. 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 So... At this time, we were really starting to look at, like, cognitive and medical models for treating poor mental health, but women were still stigmatized in the field for having hysteria, despite great leaps in psychiatric and psychological treatment. It was really difficult for people to get the help that they needed because we just didn't know what people needed yet. So, mm-hmm. um, and you can feel it, like, in this film, there's a lot of... Um, naivete (laughs) because yeah the children make up stories to deal with the traumatic situation they're in like it's almost like christopher is displacing his trauma and like coming up with this really fantastical story in order for him to like i don't know keep control of his little sister and like have some control over his life because it seems like it's spiraling out of control always um but they use it as a way to keep themselves safe and rue she pays a man to connect her with her dead daughter because she doesn't know what else to do and she can't let go of her grief. Mm-hmm. And I think we did this a lot as a country when we left Vietnam because we never really left Vietnam. Like we tried to create no. a fairy tale version of reality and we tried to rebuild it, but we actually created a really toxic system and a really horrible way of dealing with mental health. Mm -hmm. And we're now seeing the collapse of that, thank God, because of all of, um, you know, the talk about mental health and stuff like that and ending those stigmatizations. But um, we kind of hid behind a facade for a long time after the war ended. Um, Mm -hmm. Much like Auntie Rue, we didn't really bury our dead, and we were lonely and hurting as Americans. Um, like Auntie Rue, we had our glory days after World War II when things were really good for a while after the war ended. Like, if you were a straight white man, they were really good. But (laughs) then we kind of had to come down from all of that. So the children that people had in the 50s became these soldiers that were killed or broken by Vietnam. And older generations were left to reminisce about, you know, when life was good. While the younger generations got into mischief of trying to break those cycles, like through protests and stuff like that. But really, 
they did a lot of damage to future generations too. So it was kind of a lose-lose for everybody. I mean, that's not to say that we didn't make really great social leaps Mm -hmm. in the right direction, but we did it kind of like in a not so great way. Like feminism was very like led by white women. It was exclusive and, you know, not a lot of attention was paid to like people of color and stuff like that. So we ended up perpetuating a lot of really bad stereotypes. Um, But I mean, much like Christopher's misunderstandings about Auntie Rue's pig roast, (laughs) the fallout generation from Vietnam had a lot to learn about dealing with their demons and traumas from the past. Yeah. Abby, you're so smart. I loved that. Thank you for that. Oh, oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into our final thought, uh, and um, it's going to be a lot lighter. <laughs> Thank and, God. <laughs> and I will have a Christmas connection, <laughs> finally. Oh. <laughs> uh, let's talk just a little bit about Christmas witches and then this Hansel and Gretel connection to Christmas. Um, okay, so we've already talked a lot about the fairy tale Hansel and Gretel when we discussed with Kate motherfucking Scully uh, about the uh 2020 movie Gretel and Hansel, right? Okay. So if you want to learn more about like the origins of the fairy tale, check out that episode. But in this section, I want to talk about the Christmas connection to that fairy tale. Um, So I have a book here called The Old Magic of Christmas, and it is just lovely. It has lots of information on like old traditions as well as like old recipes. And there's a section in this book about Hansel and Gretel. And I was like... Wait, Hansel and Gretel has a Christmas connection besides whoever slew Auntie Rue? Well, (laughs) it does. So I'll tell you about it. The author, Linda Radish, says, quote, On December 23rd, 1893, Engelbert Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, a quote-unquote fairy opera, premiered at the Hof Theater in Weimar with Richard Strauss conducting. This was the beginning of a Christmas tradition that has lasted to this day, but it was also the most recent development in an older, edible Germanic tradition. 81 years earlier, the story of Hansel and Gretel first appeared in print in Household Stories by the Brothers Grimm. Uh, And Hansel and Gretel, I didn't realize there are types of fairy tales, but Hansel and Gretel is an example of a tale type 327 in which a child or children defeat an ogre or witch (laughs) interesting yes and tale type 327 is found all over europe okay so even before the opera's premiere hansel and gretel was considered a christmas story perhaps because it featured an edible house. The Brothers Grimm say only that the witch's house was built of bread and roofed with cakes, but few Germans would consider building a witch's house out of anything but Lebuchen. Is that how you pronounce that? Lebkuchen. Lebkuchen. <laughs> I love it. Oh, yeah, because you took German. Yes. Okay. But few Germans would consider building a witch's house out of anything but Lekuchen. <laughs> what is the difference between Lekuchen and gingerbread? Lekuchen is eaten in many shapes throughout the Christmas season, and it contains no ginger. It's gross. <laughs> it is. 
Yeah. It's very, it's like a very dry, dense cake. (gasps) Oh, no. And it's not very flavorful. It's like. Oh, no. At least, at least the Leibkuchen that I've had is just, oh. Oh, dear. Well, I've never had it. Um, But, okay. So, in Germany, Leibkuchen is consider is used like to make edible houses called Hexenhausen. <gasps> Ooh. Which means witch's cottage. Yeah. So the witch's house in Hansel and Gretel is inherently a Christmas dessert. There's also a German folk song about Hansel and Gretel that has an unknown publication date, but it, it in the song uh, it says the house is made of how do you say that? Pfefferkuchen? Pfefferkuchen. Pfefferkuchen, mm-hmm. which is a Christmas cookie. Delicious. So much like how the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore, is recited on Christmas here in the U.S., a German poem about Hansel and Gretel by Adelheid Vett is popular amongst children in Europe on Christmas. So, yeah, I think it's kind of neat that this film takes place on Christmas. And the witch in Hansel and Gretel lives in a Christmas house, basically. Coincidence? Yes, I think so. But it's still cool. That makes sense, though, because you think of, like, gingerbread houses, you know? Like, how they're decorated with candy and stuff like that. Right, exactly. So the witch just lives in a giant gingerbread house. (laughs) Well, right, exactly. So I think it's kind of interesting that, like that Auntie Rue is a Christmas witch because she has Christmas at her house. So I don't know. I thought that was really, I know, I thought that was kind of neat. I was like, wow, I never really thought about Hansel and Gretel being a Christmas story. So I thought that that was kind of a neat connection. Um, Okay, so uh, the witch in Hansel and Gretel isn't the only quote-unquote Christmas witch. The Old Magic of Christmas book also talks about a witch legend from Italy. And I will read that to you now. (laughs) (laughs) yes um so uh there was a time when it was considered godly to walk around in flea infested hair shirt while cleanliness was next to witchiness to this day the italian witch buffana pays the price for her overzealous housekeeping each epiphany eve when she flies over the rooftops on her broomstick searching for the baby jesus like the other midwinter witches who have been renamed for saints, Bafana's name is a slurring of her feast day, Epiphania, which comes from the Greek word manifestation. Though Bafana is now thoroughly a Christian witch, she remains a manifestation not just of that shining star over Bethlehem, but also the old winter goddess who used to be abroad at Yuletide. Bafana had the chance to meet the Holy Family in person way back in the first century when the three kings stopped to ask for directions, but she was too busy sweeping the dust from her dooryard to pay the glittering company any mind. Of course, as soon as they rounded the bend, she had a change of heart and decided she really would like to bring a gift to this bright young baby. By the time she had changed her clothes and baked a bag, bag baked a batch of pefinio or epiphany biscuits, the caravan had already passed out of sight. So began her two thousand year quest to locate the present, to locate uh, baby Jesus and give him presents. <laughs> 
Oh, she's dedicated. I know. In Italy and the Italian-speaking regions of Switzerland, it is Bafana who delivers the presents on the night of January 5th. In Sicily, she goes by La Vicia di Natale, the old Christmas woman, and comes on Christmas Eve. If that is, she has not been preceded down the chimney by a sooty Lucia on the night of December 12th. I don't know what all these references are. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm not Italian. Usually, no. <laughs> Bafana simply pours the toys down the chimney into the polished boots and striped stockings of children but that children put out before they go to bed. How does Bafana know what they want? It's by magic. The children write their lists on slips of paper in front of the fireplace and let them waft up the chimney and into the sky where Bafana deftly catches them. Sometimes the old hag comes inside to get a good look at the children themselves. One of these nights, she hopes that she'll meet up with the Christ child. In the meantime, she's not above taking the naughty ones and eating them. Though this aspect of her character has been played down in recent years. (laughs) Oh! So, yeah, so this idea of Santa as this old hag or this woman, uh, like Radish says in the book, isn't just contained till to Bafana either. But I did think it was interesting that here is this woman who is looking for a specific child. Yeah. And while doing so, gives gifts to other children. Which is kind of what Auntie Rue is doing. Yes. That's true. I thought that was a really interesting connection. Um, Oh my god. So anyway, that is a little bit of Christmas switchery. And, um, yep. So. Nice. (laughs) There's nothing better than a Christmas witch. There's nothing better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, well, Merry fucking Christmas, I guess, everyone. (laughs) So, uh, with that said, thank you all so, so, so much for listening to this month's episode. And we hope you all have a very Merry Holiday And we are going to see you again for uh, the next episode in January. It'll be 2022. And listen, if you love what we do and you appreciate (laughs) all of our hard work, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I do work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you love our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And if Patreon isn't your deal, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. And a link to our merch shop and our Patreon is in the show notes of this episode. So please check it out. Yes, and we know times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show, please. Yes, and don't forget, black lives still matter and trans lives still matter. So check out uh, this episode's show notes and you can see how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning and happy holidays. Bye!